This is our last week in First Peter, okay? And so I hope you've, I hope you've, you know, one thing we've done as a community together is we've read the word together. We, we've read every word of the Bible, of the book of First Peter together through the series. But I hope in your own time, you've taken the time to set and read First and Second Peter. Um, it's only about, like in my Bible, it's like three pages, four pages. And if you add Second Peter in, it's another page and a half. So I mean, it's not a lot of scripture to read. I can't, I can't encourage you enough. One of the next steps for this final week of the series is to read First and Second Peter. And you know, that's two books of the 66 books of the Bible that you could read in an hour and a half, two hours, really. So um, I can't encourage you that enough. But we're going to wrap up First Peter today um, and kind of his, uh, his, his vision for what the church is called to be, okay? And um, one of the things through this whole series I hope you've gotten a sense of is that Jesus in our lives changes everything. I mean, we always say that Jesus changes our relationship to God, right? Because before you had no peace with God, and in Jesus Christ, he made peace with the God who demands righteousness on our behalf. That's kind of a big deal. And it's kind of a huge deal. If you want to engage folks in the culture about what they believe and how they're going to be saved or renewed or have whatever, there's some big cosmological story that's going on here in our existence that we can't explain. And every religion of the world tries to explain it in some way. And if you ever engage that conversation, it's really interesting to see where the chips fall and what it comes down to. I've had the privilege to do that, to talk to Hindus about their faith, to talk to Muslims about their faith, to talk to um, uh, Baha'i, I don't know what they're even called, the folks who work, worship ba- Baha'i or whatever, I mean, it's kind of this amalgamization of all faiths, talk to Mormons, talk to um, Jehovah's Witnesses, and, 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 I'm, I'm just, and I'm not out there following these people around, I'm just out there talking about what it means to, to have peace with God. And the only place I've ever found the truth that you, can, that you can rest in God's solution for your life is in Jesus Christ. You know what I mean? Every other system will say there's something you've got to earn, you've got to do, you've got to respond. And the gospel of Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but would be saved. And that's such a beautiful thing to realize that we've been saved by God's own action. And so Peter says, if you know this truth in your life, if you know Jesus is the Messiah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change things for you. And there's two fundamental ways I believe he talks about in, in this book. He talks about how it's going to change us um, and our relationship with God, right? He said, before you were free from righteousness, you couldn't get it. And so our, fundamentally our relationship with, with God has changed because of Jesus Christ. We have fundamentally been changed internally. And then there's the flip side, which is we've been fundamentally changed with the world. And the things that we used to kind of get, we don't understand or we, they don't get us. There's a discommunication with the world in some way. And so that's what he's been talking about. And if you think about the whole narrative of this book, it comes to once you are estranged from God, but now you are familiar to him. You are in his family. And once... You love the world, but now you're kind of estranged from this time that we're passing through. 
It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about the world. He couldn't care more about the world we live in. And he's demonstrated that by his love and revelation. But it means for us, we begin to love the things of God more than the things that are right now. That's life-changing. And what will happen as we continue is that it will just change our view. It will change how we engage in culture. It will change what we desire in our lives and for ourselves. It will change the things that when you've come to the end of your life, you will have wished you had done or not done. And I think so much of our culture, especially in America, is so hung up in the things of the world that we can't even see what God is doing. And so uh, I hope you understand that that's what Peter's talking about, this fundamental relationship change between us and God and us and the world. It just fundamentally shifts to being all about God. And, and uh, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about this morning. If you look at the very beginning of 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there, but I want to remind you that at the beginning of 1 Peter, he says it's written to the saints, right? Um, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout, and he talks about some areas you're scattered all around the world, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. It's written to the saints, now, saints, you know, many of you say, I'm not much of a saint. But saints are those who are sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a state of being that you're in. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are saved. You are in a real state of being, of, of holiness, of sanctification. And, and uh, that's a beautiful thing. And I want to, um, because today we're going to talk about the church and being the church, okay? And... I want to talk about this idea, and we talked about it occasionally, but I want, to, I want to do it one more time because I feel like we can't talk about this enough, that, um, you know, being the big C church, oh, we can pull it up, this thing is still working, so, being the big C church, and we talk about the big C church, and that doesn't mean like, you know, we're the biggest church in town. It means that Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, is building a community of believers on the world. And what we do here at Family Bible Church is what I've called the little C church, doesn't mean we're not a big church. Doesn't mean we're not doing big work because God's in it. It means that we're one little congregation, one little body, one little part of this whole story of redemption that God is doing throughout the world. And so when we talk about being in the big C church, uh, we're talking about uh, saints, the sanctification of the saints of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sprinkled with the blood of Christ, glorifying to the Father. That's what we're talking about. And so some things that, we've talked about this before, but some things that church is not, is, is church is not somewhere that you go. I'm going to church. And you can say that. I'm all over my kind of militaristic, you know, you can't say that stuff. But the truth is that when we say those things with our mouth, we betray something that we, we don't fully understand. We're going to go to church. Really? Because you are the church. You understand that? If you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you are the church. That's what the Word of God says. Or, or people will say, this is my favorite thing, by the way, and we don't have that, and that's no accolades to us, but people say, y'all have a beautiful church building. No, they don't. They say, y'all have a beautiful church. Oh, this church is beautiful. And I always think, you know, the people are beautiful. A lot of times, the churches that have beautiful buildings 
you know, they wouldn't say that about their people. They wouldn't look at one another and say, oh, you are such a beautiful church. Isn't that sad? But we'll brag about whatever it is, how tall our steeple is or how pretty the stained glass is or how Aunt Melba gave the third pew, you know, as a memorial offering to her dog. I mean, I don't know what is even going on, but the church, it's offensive to me only because the church of Jesus Christ is the people in it and it's never the building and it's never somewhere you go. It's who you are. It's who you are. You are the church. And I'll tell you something else. And we're talking about this today. You are the church without Bill Dempsey as your pastor. You are the church without Family Bible Church as the church. You are the church if you know Jesus everywhere you go and in everything you do. You are the church. And we don't live like that. I hope you can understand that today. I want you to say that with me. Say, we are the church. We are the church. One more time. We are the church. Do you hear what's happening here? Because Peter, at this very last uh, kind of thought of Scripture, is going to turn this whole thing into our response to the gospel in the world as believers in Jesus Christ. And, and there's some teaching in here that's going to be um, fun to walk through. I want to, as we always do... Um, I'm actually going to share a video with you that goes along the same lines, and then we're going to pray. So let's see if, nope, can we go back one? Nope. Nope. <laughs> hey, there you go. Think he only uses perfectly qualified people? Take a closer look. Moses was not a great speaker. Jonah ran from God. Jacob was a liar. Noah got drunk. Rahab was a prostitute. David had an affair. Jeremiah was depressed a lot. Solomon was rich in wisdom, but poor in lifestyle. John the Baptist was just plain poor. Timothy was too young. Abraham was too old. Lazarus was dead. Sarah was barren. Naomi was a widow. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. And so did Sarah. Peter lacked self-control. James and John were self-righteous. Paul had a short fuse. Well, so did Peter and Moses. Actually, lots of people did. God's army isn't perfect. It never has been. It's the march of the unqualified. Get in line. Join me in prayer this morning. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that reveals that truth that you are working through ordinary people in extraordinary ways. That, you know, Father, that even at the end of the day, or maybe right in the middle of the day, right when it's happening, we could say, this isn't me, it's God. 
that we could say that first in our spirit and second with our mouth to others. It's not me, it's God. Father, today we pray for that powerful work of your Holy Spirit. We know that the word of God, your Bible, is inspired to reveal the truth of your gospel to us. And yet we know if we come with closed minds or worldly minds, we're not going to understand it. So we pray that you would enlighten our hearts, enlighten our minds, that we might know the gospel, maybe for the first time, that we might know who we are in you, maybe for the first time, and that we might be able to respond and have a life worth living for your glory. Do your will as you always do. Have your way, Father. We only make ourselves as available as we can to you today to work. And we thank you for the work you're doing. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, amen. So if you want to turn uh, to 1 Peter uh, chapter 4, we're just going to read through here, starting in verse 12. And you'll recall that we've talked about um, quite a bit of stuff, actually, in First Peter, but mostly about how we relate to one another, how we relate to the world around us. And, um, and then he started last time talking about having sober minds and, and, and uh, clear-headedness as we live in this world, that we might glorify God. And, and so I want to pick up in verse 12 this week. I'm going, to read, I'm going to read the rest of this book here today, and then we're going to talk through some of it. So it says this, Peter says to the churches, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God is resting on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of a criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's suffering, and as one who will share in the glory to be revealed, be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedily for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world undergo the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong firm, and steadfast. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, Peter writes, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. So stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that's the conclusion of his letter to the churches. And so I want to walk through what we've been doing and kind of try to pick out some principles that we can see at work here that we can apply to our own lives. There's so much happening, and I can't, I've said it before, and I'll say it repeatedly, you know, if you listen, that, that I can't encourage you enough to, to, to dwell on Scripture, to pray through Scripture, to read through Scripture, to, to ask God to open it to you, because there's so much stuff happening in here. And people said that, oh, there's been so much in First Peter we could have talked about. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. So today we're going to talk about a few things, and the first is this. In verse 12, he starts off, we kind of talked last week about verse 12 a little bit, about suffering and what suffering looks like. And so he says in verse 12, dear friends, right, those whom I love, those whom I'm just like, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. I want to read it again. Do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. See, now we talked about it last week a little bit, but I think we've come to a place as, as believers in Jesus that, that everything is perfect now. And that's true in Christ, everything is perfect, and yet it's being made perfect. And so in this time and at this place in our lives, we don't see that perfection every day. You know? I mean, you don't always get the spot you want at Walmart parking lot. You know what I mean? You don't always. And, and, and what Peter says here is so profound, because I don't think we talk about this a lot, is don't be surprised at the painful trials you are suffering as though it's strange. So what Peter's really saying, if you want to state that in the opposite way, is that suffering is normal. Or suffering is normative. The word I want to use was normative, because you know, I don't know why, I just did. But, um, but you could say suffering is normal, right? Uh, by the way, this morning, my daughter was playing a fun game in the front. She was playing Guess What the Blanks Mean. She did a pretty good job. <laughs> so you could do that, too. But this week, that's what my, what my heart was. That suffering is normal, Peter says. Don't be surprised when you face painful trials in your life as though it were strange, why? Because this is what it means to be a Christian in some way. And he's going to flesh that out here as we walk through the word together. He says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, right? So that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted, now this is the key, I think. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit and the glory of God is resting on you. But if you suffer, it should not be like a murderer or a thief or any kind of a criminal. And so the, the, what he's saying is that as you respond to the gospel in the world, just like Jesus, the world will not you know, be on board with this. They're, they're, and at the end there, you heard he talked about the enemy who prowls around. I mean, we aren't without an enemy in the world. And yet the spirit is in us is greater than the spirit that's in the world. The one who is in us is greater than the one that's in the world. Right? And so he says, um, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, count it as a glory. Right? 
That means if, and, and this is a hard thing because, see, I think a lot of times we can take this as, and we can say, you know, oh, they're just persecuting me because I'm a Christian. But sometimes I'm just being a jerk. I mean, I'm saying that me. Sometimes I'm just being a jerk. It ain't got nothing to do with Jesus or the name of Jesus or the gospel or anything else. It's just that the world rightly is offended by me. And that's not glorifying. And that's what he says in the next verse. He says, not like a murderer. What does he say? Not like a murderer or a, there's like three things he lists out there. Not like a thief, a criminal, a murderer. Where is it at? If you suffer, he has a murderer, a thief, or any criminal, or even a meddler. Right? But suffer as Christ suffered. And so, I think we've got to be wise about that. In, in other words, we're not looking to be persecuted, but we shouldn't be surprised when it happens. That's what I'll say about it, right? You're not out there saying, well, I can tell I'm doing the work of Jesus because everybody hates me. That means that a lot of people are doing the work of Jesus. <laughs> you know? That's a pretty broad brush. He says, no, not like that. But if you're doing the work of Christ, don't be surprised if they don't understand if you're talked about, if your good name is slandered. Don't be surprised. I believe, actually, in those times of our lives where we find ourselves being, being put upon, being, being confronted, and we believe we're doing the work of God, a good thing to do is to return to our prayer closet and ask God, God, is this something that I need to be changing? Is this something that I'm offensive in of myself in the world? Or is this because you're, you're doing work through me and, and people are offended by it? You know, it said that Jeremiah was depressed, right? That's pretty wild. I mean, he said things that he didn't want to say to people. And so we can go, we can ask God that. If there's something in me, Father, that's offensive, that's not of you, remove it. But if all this offense is because of your gospel, then I praise you for it. Peter says that suffering is normative if you're a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said this. This isn't a new teaching. He said, if the world hated me, it will hate you also. That's what Jesus said to his followers. If you were insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. That means you are happy because the spirit and the glory of God rests on you. And uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. And so here's the flip side. Now, I've talked about the stuff that maybe you say, well, you know, you're just not, you know, whatever. They're just, you're, you're bringing it on yourself. You're, you're making your own worldly persecution so that you can say you belong to Christ. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. But what he says next is, if you are being mocked or made fun of because you bear the name Christian, then give glory to God. Because why? That's what you are. I want to remind you, this word Christian didn't mean didn't mean then what it means now. This word Christian wasn't something that you would maybe put on a bumper sticker when this book was written. This word Christian was a word that, that people had made up to make fun of people who looked like who? Jesus. The word was made up to make fun of people who looked like Jesus. It means that people would watch the disciples of Jesus go around because they were saying things like, he's the anointed one, which is Christ in the, in the word. And he would say, this one is the anointed one of God that's come to save the whole world. And those around them would say, oh, you're one of those little Jesuses, aren't you? 
You're one of those little anointed ones, aren't you? You're one of those little Christians, aren't you? And Peter says, if others in the world are, are persecuting you because they say, oh, you're one of those. You're one of, now, that's a conversation I've had with some people. You know what I mean? You're sitting there and you're doing life. You're just doing your thing. And, and you hear somebody that's really struggling. Or they got a really bad attitude. Or whatever it is. And I, and I loved whenever I was in, you know, um, in the workforce, I would say, because you, you would see that all day long, because people would get unguarded around their coworkers. They just let it hang out. Not all the time, but sometimes. And if you're a discerning follower of Jesus, you can see it for what it is. And it's, it's, it's hurt in their life, and it's pain in their life, and it's anger in their life, and it's no peace with God. It's no peace with God. And in that moment, you can speak into their lives. As a believer in Jesus, you have something to say to them. And so you don't say like, hey, man, say this prayer with me. I mean, you don't, you know, that's not what I did. But you would just start to care. And people would be like, man, why do you care? What, what are you talking about? And they talk about their hurts. They talk about their families. I don't understand you. Why do you care about me? And then they go, oh, you're one of those Christians. You see? And that can be derogatory for them. They might want to put you in a box and write you off and say, oh, but Bill's one of those Christians. That's why. And then they add all the hypocrisy and the, all the judgment that they have about the church and all the untruths about who we are and as followers of Jesus. But the truth is that they had identified something in you, some compassion, some concern, some love that they could not explain. And they go, oh, you're a Christian. Now, see, that's the good side of this. That's what Peter says, count it a joy. And even if they, you know, and I've, we've had that conversation before where someone has said, oh, you're one of those Christians. Well, let me tell you something, buddy. There is no just God. Don't you pray for me. I don't need him. I'm fine on my own. And they just kick and scream against the eternal God of the universe. It's not our fight. But we can be wounded. And you know what I do? I hope you do it too. I just walk away and pray. Oh, Father, work. Show love. And you know, I've had that conversation where people have come all the way back around. And they come up and they're like, man, thank you so much for caring when nobody cared. Thank you so much for being Jesus to me. But in the middle of there, it's a trial. It's a hard time. And I pray that in your life, you're doing that work with Jesus. Remember, you are the church. You are the church. I pray that you have eyes to see and ears to hear the work he's doing all around you. And you can praise God that you bear the name, one who looks like Jesus. Here's what he says in verse 17. Because the time of judgment is going to begin with the family of God, right? And, it's going, and it begins with us. What will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel, right? And, and uh, we always talk about how this time is a purifying time. When you're following Jesus, it's not like you're, you know, you're, you're fixed 
in God's view of things, and yet you're going to be transformed into what his son looks like in the world. That should be a mark of our following after Jesus, not that we're manifesting our own power, Christ-likeness, but that we're being obedient to the gospel, and we begin to look more like Jesus in spite of ourselves. At Men's Steak Night, by the way, which is this Thursday night, is that not right, Lance, this Thursday night? We talk about, maybe, I don't know, we talk about how we get dragged kicking and screaming into the conformity of the image of the Son of God. As men, we feel like we're just dragged there sometimes. That he loves us and he's transforming us. Says the judgment has begun with the family of God. So in verse 19, read with me. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And what that means is that whenever that, and Jesus said these really hard things, you know, he said, bless those who curse you, right? He said, love your enemies. He said, love your enemies. We don't do any of that stuff hardly, do we? And that's hard teaching. And yet what he says is he says, be faithful to your creator, commit yourselves to him, and continue to do good in spite of hard times. Continue to do good. Now we're going to change gears here because what we're going to learn is a truth. This, this uh, shouldn't be that shocking to us, but I think it really is. And is this, that the more our lives are about others, the more happy we are in Christ. The less we're about ourselves, the more we're about others, the happier we are. Check it out. He says this in verse uh, 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. So Peter, I want you to see something here. Peter himself doesn't identify himself as over, as any better than the elders in the churches he writes to. He says, we're all here following Jesus together. This is Peter, one of the disciples of Christ, who could say to people, hey, I was in the boat with them. Hey, remember me? I'm the guy that walked on water. Hey, remember me? I'm the guy that caught the fish for him. But Peter doesn't. He says, I'm a fellow elder like you, a witness to Christ's sufferings and one who will also share the glory to be revealed. I want to tell you the the next thought we have here is that in the church of Jesus Christ, leaders are needed. Leaders are needed. When we see the word elder in the Bible, it kind of comes across as, I think it's presbytos here, but it comes across as a couple of things. Uh, the one is that there's the reality of growing older. And I'll tell you the truth, confessionally for our culture, we do not respect aged people in our community. Do you believe that's true? We don't have time to sit and listen to them. We're way too busy with our stuff. We don't think they have much to tell us, even though they lived for like 96 years, and you've lived for like 22 I'm not picking on 20-year-olds. That's where I find myself. I'm like, oh, that's cute. Wrap it up. I got things to do. Listen, they've lived like four times longer than us. There's some wisdom in just the longevity of life. And yet when we're talking about the, the people of God, we're talking about people who are seasoned in their faith with Jesus. It doesn't mean you've been in church a long time. It means you've been responding to the gospel of Christ for a long time. And you'll know these people because they're graceful and they're loving and they're sacrificial. And they're humble. And in those, Peter says, in these elders, we, we, you know, I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering. And he gives us some things we can do as followers of Jesus. And I hope that today you understand that this isn't for someone else. It's not for someone else, but it's for you if you're in the church, the big C church. 
that what he's going to talk about here are opportunities for you to lead in the church. Listen to what he says. As I appeal to you as a fellow elder, so we're all following Jesus together, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory that's going to be revealed in the future. He says this, be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing. I want to stop one second and I want to talk about this word shepherd, shepherd here, right? Because one thing that happens in, in the word is you try to find other words that are like it. The word shepherd means what it sounds like it means. It means someone who's tending the flock. It means someone who's tending the sheep, right? You've seen the pictures. I'm not sure if you've ever actually worked a farm. I have not done it. But you see people who do that. And you imagine in the Middle East how they would work the sh the. the the flocks. They would care for them. They make sure that none strayed away. They make sure that they all stayed together. Right? And he says, as elders in the church, as leaders in the church, your job is to oversee the flock. Now, here's what's interesting. Another place in the, in the Bible, we've decided to translate this term pastor. It appears one time in scripture, and it's the same exact word as shepherd. There's no distinction so there's not, you know, this, this, and we've kind of had this model. And Peter, if you read what he just wrote to us, he says, you're, you know, as fellow elders in the body of Christ, he's kind of saying we're all following Jesus together. So be shepherds of God's flock. And so I want to say that a lot of times in churches we'll say, you know, we'll do two things, I think. We'll put too much stock in what our pastor does or doesn't do. And I'm not talking about myself because I feel like, you know, you know what I mean? If y'all are bragging on me, you know, you got some pretty low standards. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but there are people who would say, oh, my pastor, my pastor, my pastor. Listen, it's the shepherd of the people of God, and it's not one person appointed to do that job. It's just not. And so he says, as a fellow elder, be shepherds, not because you have to, but because you want to, like God wants for you. You desire to care for the people of God. And I want to continue on through here. He says, um, and the second thing he says is, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. And I'm going to flip that around. And I'm going to say, eager to serve, not greedy for money. Right? Because you read the first thing you read, and he says, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. But the point is that as leaders in the church of Christ, our call is to serve others. And not to try to make out, not to try to make a deal, you know what I mean? And I'll tell you, one of the biggest problems, I heard someone just recently say this, the, the, the biggest places that, that people fall who are in full-time ministry, and not just senior pastors, not just pastor leaders, not just the guy up front the talking, you know, not the, not the preacher, the, but the biggest areas of failure are money and sex. Those are the areas we see pastors fall all the time, Right? And so here he's saying about money, he's like, you know, don't be eager for money. Don't be eager for money, but to serve others. Desire that as leaders in the church. And, and it's hard for me to say that because, you know, some of what happens in the Bible church pays my salary. It allows me to do what I do. And yet the word of God says, don't be eager, don't let it drive you. But let the service to the people of God drive you. Next thing he says, I love this one too. Be examples, not what? Not lording it over them. Be examples. If you want to be a leader in the church, you don't, you don't dictate what people do. You do what you want people to do. 
you know? And you're not doing it to manipulate them. You're doing it because God's, you know, making you obedient. So when you're following of Jesus, you set an example to others. Listen, if you've been around, you've been following Jesus a long time, I hope you're not where you were the whole time. Just I'm following whoever's next. I'm going to follow the next leader. I'm going to follow the next pastor. Listen, God is calling his church to respond to the gospel, to be examples of one another. And I know some of you do that in your life. Praise God that we have those examples around us. Because then in this community of faith where we have folks who are shepherding us and, and kind of tending us and making sure we don't get off the path, you know, that we can stay together and, and, and who aren't greedy but, but want to serve and who aren't lording it over but rather being examples to the flock. Now, see, that's being the church. And that's being a leader in the church. And he wraps it up by saying this. This is interesting. He says, because when the chief shepherd appears, who would that be? Jesus. In other words, all this stuff, Peter's saying, we're all in submission to him and to God the Father and to Jesus' Son, powered by the Holy Spirit. And he says, in all these things, when the master comes back, there's going to be an accounting. He says it a different way here. He says, um, he says, uh, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. So he speaks in a positive, you know, that there's going to be something that he's going to judge us for what we did in his name while we were here. I hope you can hear that today. And I hope you can respond to that today. And not in a way that appeals to me for heaven's sake, but a way that's glorifying to God. That, here's something that was really, really cool this week. Um, uh, I'll name names just because I don't think it'll matter too much, but Lance had this devotion he sent out to some folks, and I was really blessed by it because it said, you should exhaust yourself for other people. You should pour out every little bit that you have for other people. We're talking about why in a minute, but it goes right along with this, this week's um, passage. But he says, you're going to give and you're going to serve and you're not going to lord it over them, you know. And I think a lot of what's happened in churches is we've come into this idea that, well, I can't do nothing unless I'm on a leadership team. I can't do nothing unless I'm part of the diaconate board. I can't do nothing unless I'm part of the blast team. I don't have a place in the kingdom of God unless I'm involved in this little C church organization. That's kind of ridiculous. The truth is that you're called to be leaders in the church of God. You're called to be shepherds of his people and too much of what we've seen happen in churches is that we lord it over people. We, we you know, demand some compliance to our own ways and not divine submission to the holy God. That's what we're going for. All of us would be in submission to the chief shepherd that he might guide our steps, that he might guide our ways. Now that's glorifying to him. And he says, you'll receive a crown. And here we go. Young men, he says, young folks, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. He means, and that's the same word, by the way, elder up above. It's the same exact word. So those who are older, those who have spent more time, and I know it's hard for us to do sometimes. We think we have it all figured out, and uh, we're wrong a lot. All of you clothe yourselves, so everyone then should clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we need grace. And so, therefore, it says, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Now, here's the best thing ever, that in due time, he may lift you up. And we talked about that before with the submission to worldly authorities. You humble yourself for a while so that in due time, God can lift you up. Why? For his glory, for his purpose, but not for ours. And so that's how we follow him. That's how we do it. And that's how we're leaders. 
This verse is probably sounds familiar to you. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That verse right there is huge. Matter of fact, uh, six and seven is our memory verse this week, and I hope if you just memorize that. By the way, one of the things that we can do uh, is rejoice in suffering. You know, like, woohoo! Things aren't going great. Yes! We did that at the Gary Smalley conference two weeks ago. Gary Smalley insisted. He said there was two things you can do to change your life forever. And he said the first is you can rejoice in sufferings because it's normative, right? So when things are going, you know, really, really bad, you can be like, yes, God, you're so cool. That's what Gary Smalley said to him. I'm like, you're crazy, dude, you know? He says, yeah, you got to be like, yes. Why? Because God cares for you. Do you believe that's true? And the second thing he said to do, which I thought was very wise, he said, memorize scripture. Capture the promises of God in your heart. I read this week a story of a guy who was in a coma. Oh, well, he died. He was dead. But he was in a coma for like, I don't know, three months or something crazy. The whole time he was in the coma, he could hear he could, he, could, he could perceive what was happening around him. He had a sense of who he was. And the only relationship he could foster and engage in and be transformed by was God because he couldn't speak. He couldn't move. He couldn't control his bodily functions. He was laying there at the mercy of people around him. One of the things he said was that they played the same CD because they thought, you know, it's good for patients to hear stuff. They played the same CD so much. He said, when he woke up, I was coma, he said, I never want to hear it again. Never, ever. Oh, we, did. We, we thought that you might hear that. We didn't know, but they never changed the CD. But you know what he did? And this is what really blew me away. As he said, I praise God because I knew scripture. And so whenever I got sick of listening to the song play for the thousandth time, I would just push that out of my mind and I would recite the promises that God has for me in his word. Huh. Three months he spent just dwelling with God. Now that's amazing. So what we do is we celebrate and then we ingest the word of God, the promises God has for us. Listen to it. This is the memory verse. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he will lift you up in due time and cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Wow, if we could just believe that, how much differently would we live life? Wrapping it up, he says this, be self-controlled and alert. By the way, last week we talked about being of sober minds, the same thing. You know, we are a culture of distraction. And here he says, humble, or he says, be self-controlled and alert. Be attentive to what God is doing around you, right? And there's all of us have these things that are distracting us because the devil prowls around looking for someone to eat. Resist the devil. Stand firm in your faith because you know that all over the world, folks are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, here's, here's the last point today. And we're going to close with this. Verse 10, he says, And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, so Peter says the suffering is going to happen, will himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. You see, the last thing we have to understand and the, kind of the, the final thought here on what Lance had shared about pouring yourselves out for others is that in the end of the day, at the end of our life, at the end of the year, at the end of the moment, at the end of the encounter, we can just be replenished by God. That we can be restored by God. 
that if you are doing the work of God in the world and you've given yourself, you've taken risks, you've, you know, whatever you've done today, at the end of the day, you can lay down, you can say, Father, I'm exhausted. I got nothing. These people need more than I can give. That lady at work, I don't know how to help her anymore. My sister, I don't know what to do for her anymore. You know, my boss is still a jerk and I've submitted for six months now. And God says, I will restore you in that place. I hope you know that, that the work we're doing isn't by our power, but his power. And therefore, the filling up comes from him. The restoration comes from him. And look what it says. He'll restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now, that's a good deal. That's a beautiful promise. So as we come to the end of the, this uh, letter from Peter... And we learned that some of the hard things we have to do that he's taught us about. At the end of the day, we can return to the chief shepherd, to the one who loves us more than anyone else. And we can say, Father, I'm empty. I'm gassed. I'm out. And he'll just fill us up. He'll just restore us for the next day, for the next week, or for the next year. I'm not sure if the word restoration speaks to you at all, you know. But there's been two words we talked about in the, in the book of 1 Peter, and that's transformation and restoration. And when we see the cross of Jesus, that's what God came to do, to restore his people. I hope that you and I can be counted among those who are being restored to God. I mean that, restored to God himself. We believe that the most loving thing God could do for a broken world was come into it to grow up around us, hang out with us, show us what the kingdom of God looks like, and then give himself up as the ultimate sacrifice for us. The prophets, those guys who had all those ills and ailments and stuff, they spoke about this coming Messiah, the one who would set things right. I pray that you know him. So right now I'm going to invite you to pray with me and if, if you're here and you're like, man, this is, you know, we always say, take your challenges to God. Take your concerns to God. Because there are all kind of ways our hearts deceive us. But we want to know truth. That's all we want to know today is the truth. So join me in prayer. Father God, today as we come into your throne room, if you come into the place where you have claimed authority in our lives, we sit at your feet and we just wait for you to speak. Father, we admit that our hearts are hard against you, hard against your ways, that we have minds that tend to wander off, that we have feet that just grow weary of running, that we have souls that don't naturally respond to the truth of your love. Today, Father, we ask that you would intervene on our behalf. We pray that we would make Jesus our Lord and Savior that if we've never done it before, today we would lay down everything we have at his feet and say, Jesus, Rabbi, Savior, Lord and Master, teach us, grow us. Father, we, we, we love Jesus and we've known love through Jesus and yet I feel like sometimes our lives aren't an adequate response, that we, that we mess it up and we confess that. We pray, Father, that you would continue to do your work in our lives. Father God, would you call leaders forth in your kingdom? 
Would you call us to risk things that are safe, like our little C churches, so that your big C church might be built? Father, would you call us to be sold out followers after you? May we never have false criticism. May we never bring dishonor to your name. We know we'll do it, Father. We pray that it wouldn't happen. But may we be following you with such passion, such love, that others would say, man, what's going on with these folks? In that moment, we don't want to glorify ourselves. We want to say, there's this God who loves you so much. Manifest that in our lives. Father, in your way, in your time, we give you glory and praise for what you're doing here. We pray during this time of response that we just have hearts and minds open to your word. That we could know you and be loved by you. That we could worship you in spirit and truth. We pray these things by the powerful name of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.